0: God is dead. So proclaims um, this book, anyway, that um, I've been uh, reading uh, this week. It's a book by a, a sociologist um, called Steve Bruce. Um, and it's actually not just a sensationalist pot boiler, it's uh, a, um, a careful and uh, very clearly set out exposition of the decline in church attendance and in the strength, actually, uh, more broadly, of our national religious convictions in this country. That decline's been going on for at least 100 years now. And uh, Bruce's claim is that it is actually difficult to maintain faith in the God of the Bible in our uh, modern liberal industrial democracies in in the Western world. And he's got a mountain of evidence on his side church attendance has plummeted over the uh, last hundred years just to take one statistic for instance a hundred years ago in 1900 55 percent of all children uh, went to Sunday school a hundred years later uh, in 1999 it was down to four percent and it's still falling we actually probably have a a higher proportion of uh, the Sunday school-going children in East Oxford coming to us now than uh, Magdalen Road 100 years ago did when I know it had 250 children attending the Sunday school. Such is the decline, at least in that area of church, interest and attendance. And it's reflected again and again and again in different um, aspects of our life. Reports of God's death may perhaps be exaggerated a little, but his influence on our lives have, uh, has declined dramatically. And even those who go to church feel the, the, the force of that trend. Maybe, for instance, that you're here actually wishing that you had a real lively faith in God. But uh, you know that the whole mood of society conspires against that. Today, our faith is in, uh, in medicine, science, economic progress, um, the power of democracy. Those things give us the good life. God, God seems distinctly uh, irrelevant and marginal, to be honest. We may mourn his absence a little, but it's very difficult actually to really have confidence in God. Even people who uh, are are committed Christians, I'm sure are not immune from the power of society to, uh, to sap our faith. We may say all the right things in our creedal statements, but actually, when it comes down to it, Our real confidence is in what everybody else has confidence in, money, science, technology. Our faith actually becomes just a a, a private opinion held um, um, in the the recesses of our mind, exercised in the privacy of uh, a private company, not actually the lifeblood of how we live. Steve Bruce then, I think, is is very close to the truth when he says in, in profound ways in our world, God is dead. But where I disagree with him, and many others like him because there's lots of books coming out like that, where I disagree with him is his contention that it's never happened before. He says that uh, uh, this moment is unique in all of history. And though certainly its present form is unique, actually I think this has happened again and again down through history. Far from fading out though, God's people, the Christian faith, has survived again and again and flourished. That was the case, for instance, in the first couple of hundred years of the church's life. During that that time, Rome and Roman uh, administration was all-powerful. Christianity was hated, despised. People died for their faith. It would have been easy for Christians to lose confidence in the power of God because he seemed so powerful, but they didn't. Actually, Christian faith thrived, multiplied, became actually um, uh, spread throughout the Roman Empire and even beyond where Rome could reach. Such was the power of faith in God. And during that whole period, there was a particular part of the Old Testament that helped those Christians to understand how to live and thrive in a hostile world. It wasn't the record of the great days of Israel when uh, David was king and Israel seemed unchallenged. It was actually the record of the exile and the days after that, the miserable days, when Israel lived under foreign domination. Because uh, somehow, faith in the living God had been preserved in that era. And and, uh, real faith had survived. They wanted to know how. So they read, amongst other things, the very book we're going to be studying over the next few months. Because uh, Zechariah, you see, wrote into a situation very like ours. We'll let them take that um, out. You could leave that door open, I think, gentlemen. It's a bit hot. Thank you. Zechariah wrote into a situation very, very like ours. It was a situation actually uh, dominated by a a foreign power, in their case, a a power that uh, had no respect for the God of Israel. A time when actually God's people were were tempted to lose confidence that God was all-powerful at all let me just uh, tell you a little bit about the background to uh, um, the book of Zechariah that we're going to be looking at to try and help you to see why for both early Christians and, uh, let me suggest, for us, it was such an important and, and useful time to understand. History up to that, uh, for the last uh, a lifetime or so, had gone like this. In 587 BC, God had finally run out of patience with the nation of Israel. And uh, the last bit, Judah, where Jerusalem was, had been overrun by a foreign ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, the uh, people had been exiled, sent into exile to Babylon. Babylon. 538, another ruler, Cyrus, had arisen in Babylon, and Cyrus, unlike his predecessors, had uh, a policy of allowing uh, local countries to worship their own God as long as they gave ultimate allegiance to him. So he gave permission for a number of Jews who were in Babylon at that time to return to to Jerusalem. But the return was pretty miserable. Only a few of them uh, uh, returned. They started trying to rebuild the temple. They weren't very successful. And uh, all in all, they lived under the complete domination of the foreign power still. In uh, 522 BC, sometime uh, later, another ruler... Um, With several in between, but another ruler called Darius I came to power. And uh, initially, as often happens, when he uh, came to power, there were numerous uprisings. And it looked for just over a year like the whole of the uh, kingdom was going to fall apart. That was a real moment of excitement for Israel. Because perhaps, perhaps at that moment, they could uh, uh, manage then once again to re-establish the ancient faith of Israel properly in their nation. And uh, (coughs) in 520 BC, Haggai, the previous prophet, um, who, uh, uh, just on the previous page in your Bible, started prophesying, effectively saying, get going, rebuild the temple. Also, um, Zechariah at that point um, uh, seems to have uh, um, received the the prophecy which is uh, uh, recorded in verses 2 to 7 that we'll look at in just a moment. But Darius was um, a pretty strong ruler, and he soon overthrew all the uprisings and um, executed his enemies, And uh, very soon after that, it became much, much less hopeful. Uh, By late 520 BC, the whole kingdom was quiet again. And in 519 BC, just after those events, Zechariah receives a whole series of visions that we see recorded from chapter 1 through to chapter 7. That's what we're going to be studying over a number of uh, weeks then, starting off uh, this morning. uh, We're going to be looking at what Zechariah was told to tell the people when yet again, another moment, when perhaps they thought the kingdom might be restored and they would get back to their previous prosperity, was dashed before their eyes. Zechariah is not a depressive wistfully longing for past days of splendor he's actually a man of hope a man of confidence a man of assurance in the lord almighty as he loves to call him the lord of hosts as the old king james version uh, translated it the god who rules the whole world forever the first thing (coughs) that Zechariah wants to uh, tell his people. Remember, which was uh, said when there was still some degree of uncertainty about what was going to happen to the wider kingdom. The first thing he wants to say to his people is God invites us back to him. Verses 1 to 6. God, you see, had sent his people into exile in the first place. God had allowed his people to, uh, even though they had returned in small numbers, to live under under the domination of a foreign rule because of their disobedience. But God says, I am willing to have you back. Verse 2, the Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Verse 3, therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. The beautiful symmetry about it in the way God deals with us. If we turn to him, he says, he turns to us. That, it is that simple, he says. The reason the Israelites were in a difficult situation was not because of God's powerlessness. It was the flip side of that principle. If we turn away from God, so God turns away from us. Verse 4, Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. That's why they were in this situation. Because they had turned away from God. That generation is dead and gone now, says Zechariah, verse 5. Where are your forefathers now and the prophets? Do they live forever? It's amazing how life flies by, he says. We think we can live our lives without really worrying what God says. We think, oh, there'll always be a chance to uh, change my mind and get back, to get back with God. But time marches on with incredible rapidity, he says. And the decisions those people made at that moment, perhaps thinking they could reverse them sometime, became set in concrete, and now they are dead and gone. God's warnings, he says, actually have an uncanny way of overtaking us before we know what's happening. Verse 6 Did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants the prophets, overtake your forefathers? Actually, frankly, for me, that is the most persuasive explanation for the decline of of Christianity in Britain at the moment. The Apostle Paul warned the church that the church will be tempted, um, church leaders will be tempted to teach people what their itching ears want to hear. But in that turning away, actually, from what God really says, disaster comes upon his people been a central characteristic of the liberal movement in the church for the last hundred years that uh, that they have declined to teach what God really says. uh, A prominent liberal bishop in a a conversation with a friend of mine recently was horrified that my friend still, still believed all the central things that Christians have actually always believed, um, including that the Bible is the final authority on what it means to be a Christian. He said to my friend, if you teach that, you will empty your church. But my friend was pastoring one of the biggest churches in his diocese. And actually, all the other churches in his diocese who are following what he says have dwindled away to almost nothing. Did not my words and my decrees overtake your forefathers, says Zechariah? Well, hasn't God's words and his decrees overtaken our forefathers in this country? But you see, it is always possible to turn back to God. Verse 6 again, second half. Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and our practices deserve, just as he determined to do. They, those people who originally went into exile, finally realized that God had been right. The exile couldn't be quickly reversed. They had to live with the consequences of their actions, but at least they Repented, or literally, at least they turned, returned to God. The same root as the word return in verse 3. Then they did finally believe that everything God said was true. And if verse 2 is right, God returned to them. Exiles they may have been, living under a foreign ruler they may have been, but God was with them as soon as they accepted his words were true, that his judgment was right and lived by his promise, return to me and I will return to you. Jesus says that to us. He said it again and again. Whoever comes to me, he said, I will never drive away. He said in the prophecy to John in Revelation, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Or Jesus' great parable of the prodigal son, that foolish young man who went went far from his father, who squandered his wealth, but the father always waited. The father never stopped loving him. The father always scanned the horizon, waiting for his son to come back, so that when his funds did finally come to his senses and uh, shamefacedly walked back along the same road that he had walked out on his father the father saw him it says a long way off and ran to greet him and embraced him and had a feast in his honour that is the God we live under A God who will not be mocked. His words are true. His words can overtake us before we know it. But a God who says to us again and again, return to me and I will return to you. Like a father embracing his wayward son. like someone knocking at the door, wanting to come in for a meal. I will return. That's Zechariah's first promise. But then begins this whole series of visions that Zechariah has, the first of which we're just going to look at uh, briefly this morning that first vision reminds us God is watching. (laughs) Zechariah sees a number of horsemen. Verse 8, During the night I had a vision and there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown and white horses. Uh, uh, The English translators don't know horses, I'm afraid, so... They've they've tended to dis, dis depict these horses as if they were painted with poster paints. They're not. Red is a is a description of a bay horse. The uh, brown um, literally means mixed coloured. It may have been a roan if you know them, or or a, or a piebald. Um, but um, uh, uh, whatever, these are very real looking horses. They're not children's pictures. Some people have si- tried to see some deep significance in the, uh, the colours of the horses, but uh, um, they appear again in chapter 6 and seem to be different colours. So I don't think that uh, um, we're to, to, to read a great significance in each individual colour. Many people have wondered whether there's a particular significance about this, this leading horseman, this man riding a red or bay horse, Some have thought this might be a a pre-incarnate vision of of Jesus. There isn't much evidence for that in the text, though. People in Zechariah's world would know what this picture um, uh, uh, described. It described a little cohort of horsemen such as they had seen often. Because Darius used little groups of horsemen like this to inform him of what was going on in his vast empire. Sometimes those same horsemen as well were used as, uh, 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 as part of his great army. He had a cavalry, and interestingly, always in each uh, division of horses, he made sure there were some white ones because they were the sacred uh, colour, just as there was a white horse amongst this little group. and they are hidden in this uh, ravine hidden uh, in the leafy uh, uh, behind the leafy myrtle trees we can't quite see how many there are perhaps in fact there's a vast army behind them hiding in that ravine about to come out and destroy all opposition as Darius had done perhaps they're only spies a little cohort sent out to watch actually uh, uh, when we get to chapter 6 we'll see those horses as an army but here they are just spies they are just there to watch verse 10 the man standing among the myrtle trees explained they are the ones the lord has sent to go throughout the earth They reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. We've gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. God is watching over Zechariah's world more uh, actively, more effectively than even this King Darius who's just uh, 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 thwarted all his enemies. perhaps uh, today God's angels see in exactly the same way as God's angels saw then. For a moment they have seen the world is at peace. The angel of the Lord, however, doesn't seem very happy about that, verse 12. The angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah? which you have been angry with these 70 years. Certainly peace is a good thing. Christians are commanded to pray for peace. But a world peaceful and secure in opposition to God is far from good. For Israel, in Zechariah's day, that meant they had no real uh, uh, prospect of re-establishing a godly community in the Promised Land. For us today, it means actually... That though the world may be quiet and peaceful most of the time, often it is quietly, peacefully, ruthlessly destroying people's lives. We get some evidence of it from time to time. September the 11th, for instance, reminded us of the, uh, the, the anger there is in the world at the uh, oppressive foreign policies that Western countries have. It's no joy to many people in the world that the world is at peace. For many people, it means they are impoverished. You see that when you start dealing with small children who have been deeply damaged by the way in which their parents are determined to simply lead their own lives and to uh, marry and divorce at will under the benign eye of the nation. it's no joy for those children that the world says, okay, that's no big problem. They live with the misery of it See, sometimes the quiet, settled determination of a world is a bad thing because it's a settled determination against God. The angel of the Lord here, as he surveys this now peaceful world, cries out to God about it. How long, God, before you start fulfilling your promises. Will God leave his world with no faithful witness to stand against this? Verse 14, the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was a little angry, but they added to the calamity. He was only a little angry when he sent Israel into exile. But now he is very angry at a world that feels secure in opposition to him because they added to the calamity. Perhaps he was a little angry with God's church as he allowed uh, uh, the influence of a compromised church to, to drain away in at least parts of this world. But he is very angry at the rising number of children who are emotionally disturbed by their parents' behaviour patterns. He is very angry at the grinding poverty of, of certain nations. He is very angry about the millions of unborn babies who are uh, aborted in, uh, uh, in this world. Five million Britain alone. Forty million in the United States. He is very angry at the millions of lives that have been lost over the the last hundred years in the pursuit of of godless utopias in, in Turkey, Russia, Europe, China, Cambodia, Rwanda, and on it goes. He is very angry. It literally says he's red in the face. So much for a dispassionate God, he cares about humans passionately. And he is quietly, ominously watching like those spies in that ravine and taking note. God has his tape recorder running for the world, for you and me. So verse 16, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy and there my house will be rebuilt and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem declares the Lord Almighty God will return there's that word again actually it could be translated I have returned I am present amongst my penitent people and I will do as I promise two things actually particularly signified in these promises firstly he will once again be present amongst his people he will build his temple his house secondly once again he will rebuild a community who loves him that uh, um, uh, verse a bit about the measuring line being out in Jerusalem signifies that the architects are gonna get going and start rebuilding the city again God's people once again are going to be reunited as his community worshiping him and more verse 17 this is what the lord almighty says my towns will again overflow with prosperity the lord will again comfort zion and choose jerusalem overflow to the surrounding area actually the degree to which that was literally fulfilled was was very modest and right up to the time of Jesus they were still looking for a fulfillment of this vision of Zechariah and then Jesus came along and Jesus said stop worrying about the temple being rebuilt you'll find God's presence in me now one greater than the temple is here Jesus said, Stop worrying about forming a new community around this city of Jerusalem. No, Jerusalem has refused to be comforted. I'm going to form a new community in my church. And that blessing will now overflow not just to the towns and cities of Judah, but to the world. Throughout uh, um, the world and down through the centuries, again and again, we have seen God honor that promise. Sometimes he honors that promise in a, in a mass movement, in, in South America, Africa, uh, the Far East at the moment. God is, is richly blessing the church and it's, it's growing explosively. But in every age, there are individuals who can respond to that too. That promise, return to me and I will return to you. And find God's presence. Find God's mercy and comfort. Find a new community. It's happening here. And more than that even... We have a sure and certain hope that one day God will fulfill his promise in the fullest form. There is one book in the Bible, in the New Testament, which quotes from Zechariah more than any other. It's the book of Revelation. Because the New Testament makes it plain that the final fulfillment of God's promises to Zechariah occur in the new heaven and the new earth, when Jesus will come again and recreate the whole of his creation, occur in the new Jerusalem where Jesus will finally fulfill this promise to recreate a community, a proper community. In that place there is no temple, says Revelation, because God himself is there openly and fully amongst them. that's Zechariah's promise then a promise said to people who lived under foreign domination promise said to us return to me and I will return to you come to me and when I Jesus finally return to this world and you will be with me in paradise. The offer's there. The offer's clear. Let's pray. Perhaps it's another moment in the silence for you to to speak to God. He walked away from him? He comes to us as we come to him.